Welcome to the Locking Castle Podcast. This Sunday morning's teaching is part of the Bible in two years. So just before I start, um, we're going to be looking through the beginning of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles, you might want to have that open, or Adele will try and follow where I'm going. Um, but just, be, just before I start, um, I, I'm useless at advertising stuff that I do. Um, but we do a women's conference every year, um, and it fills up really quickly. It's in about three weeks' time. But they've chosen more places, um, so I didn't know if any nice females would be interested. Um, it's the 8th to the 10th of March. Um, so come and see me afterwards if you would be interested in coming and I'll direct you. Um, but also alongside that, this is a very weird request. I don't know if any of you have a sword um, that you would be willing to lend me for the weekend. <laughs> yes? Excellent. Excellent. I will, I will speak to you, Dan and um, Sue, afterwards. Thank you. I won't. It'll just be in the conference centre. So, the reading today, it's difficult, isn't it, when there's a lot of passages that you're, you're trying to get through and you think, what bit should I try and focus on? But the problem is, when you've got this story... You, you want to do all of it, so um, bear with me this morning. I will do my best. But as I was reading and studying, I, I realised that this whole passage, in fact, really, the whole book of Exodus, is about identity. It's about the identity of Moses, the identity of the people of God, but also the identity of God himself. So keep that in your mind as we carry on. Too many bits of paper. So, if we think back a few weeks before we went on to study John, we had gone through the book of Genesis. And if you remember, we left Genesis, we finished Genesis with... Joseph and his family being reunited in Egypt. So God had used Joseph to save the Egyptians, to save all the people, and all his family had come there, and they were given the land of Goshen, the place where they could have their herds and their flocks, and they established themselves in the land. But as we begin the story of the Exodus, many years have passed, probably around about three to four hundred years. So the events of Joseph and what he did for Egypt have been forgotten. And a new Pharaoh has come into power, and he's not interested in what they did in the past. He's interested in what he can get out of the Israelites now. They've grown very numerous. 
they've increased, they've become fruitful, they've multiplied in the land, and this pharaoh is afraid of them. He's afraid of what might happen if they carry on in that way. And so at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that instead of being these highly honored people within the land, Pharaoh is enslaving them. And isn't it interesting that we can go from a place of total freedom and suddenly find ourselves in a place of enslavement to something else? It can happen almost without us being aware of it. And it happens over and over again to the people of Israel. In fact, we've seen it even in our own, um, you know, the last hundred years with everything that happened to the Jewish people with the Holocaust. It's this pattern repeating itself over and over and over again. And so the Israelites are enslaved and they're worked really hard. But when that doesn't stop them being fruitful and multiplying, Pharaoh comes up with another plan and he decides that all the male babies have to be killed. Horrendous, absolutely horrendous. But that's what we find happening in chapter one. And thus the stage is set for God's deliverance of his people. It's, it's in these first few chapters of Exodus that the people of Israel are called for the first time his people. They begin to form their identity as the people of God. But it's also God's deliverance of them and his return of them to the land that he had promised them. You remember when, when Joseph and all his brothers came down to Egypt to settle, they knew that God would take them back to their own land one day. And so in chapter 2, we are introduced to Moses. This is a familiar story from our childhoods. We've all heard, I would think, the story of Moses in the bulrushes and being pulled out of the river, this miraculous salvation. So let me begin reading um, from Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. Isn't it amazing? She couldn't bear to give up her child. But she knew that she couldn't keep him, so she trusted him to the hands of God. His sister, and this is Miriam, who we hear so much more about over the coming chapters, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, saw the baby, was crying and felt sorry for him. 
This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. We see God's plan beginning to be put into practice already. And then his sister Miriam, who's been watching, she asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? You know, she could have stayed silent and just watched to see what would happen. But she took her courage in both her hands and stepped forward. Speaking to Pharaoh's daughter would not have been an easy thing to do. She was probably, I don't know, maybe eight years old, maybe 12 years old. She certainly wasn't a grown woman. But she took her courage and she stepped in and played her part in this story. Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Incredible, isn't it, the way that God works when we trust him. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I love that. God's plan is always better than ours. It's always just far more exciting than ours could ever be. Not only has she managed to save her baby, but she's end up, ended up nursing her baby, raising her baby, and Pharaoh's daughter is paying her to do so. You know, when we trust God... He does exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or imagine. But we need to trust him to do that. So we see that God is already positioning Moses for the plans and purposes that he has for him in the future. He knows his family, his Hebrew family, but he is put in the palace to be raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So whilst he's there, he will learn all the protocols of the palace. He will know people. He has contacts. He understands how things work. He learns about the politics. He learns to read and write. Things that he would never have received had he stayed with his own family. But just imagine the conflict that this must have brought to Moses and his identity. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? 
The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So there we see some of the conflict going on within Moses. He knows that he's Jewish, a Hebrew. He knows his Hebrew family. He knows some of their history. He's probably one of the only, if not the only boy of his generation to survive. So probably suffering from survivor's guilt. Why did I survive this? Why did I come through it when so many others were killed? His people are slaves. He sees them being beaten and worked really, really hard. And yet he was raised in the palace. His whole life was different to the people that he truly belonged to. He was probably being served day by day by the ones that he should really have been working alongside. You know, so often as we go through our life, we can find ourselves battling with our identity feeling like we don't fit in the place that we are. I know many children will say, I don't feel like I belong in this family. I feel like I'm different somehow. I, I, don't, I don't fit. Or maybe we're in a new job and we're saying, I, I don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I belong here. You see, we can't look to externals for our identity. We must look to God. We are children of Almighty God. Moses fell between two worlds. And maybe you find yourself in that position as well. Maybe when you're at work or with your family, you're one thing. But when you're here in church amongst your Christian family you're something else. But you see, God wants to knit us together and make us whole. So that who we are when we are before God is who we are in every different situation and circumstance that we find ourselves. We shouldn't change depending on our circumstances. We need to know who we are that we are children of the living God and that we represent him wherever we go. Moses sees the injustice. He sees his people being beaten and his heart is to step in and do something. But of course, as so often, when we try to do things in our own strength, it goes terribly wrong. And Moses ends up killing the Egyptian. And in fear, he flees for his life. And he ends up in the desert. He's aged about 40 at this point. 
And then he enters another 40 years of obscurity. He gets married, has children, learns how to look after sheep in the desert. He must have thought that was it. His life was over, this was it completely. He probably thought that God had totally finished with him. And yet, God has barely begun to work in his life. So many years pass, about another 40 years. And in verse 23 of chapter 2, we hear that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So God looked at the Israelites and was concerned about them. I won't go into all the the details, but the word here that's used is that cry of utter despair, hopelessness, when everything has gone wrong and there seems to be no way out. And God always responds to that cry. He is attracted to our desperation in a way that we cannot even begin to understand. So in chapter 3, we come to the famous, another famous part of Moses' story, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. You see, it wasn't unusual to see bushes burst into flames in the desert. When they got too hot, that's what would happen. That's why we see so many bushfires and forest fires happening. When the heat becomes intense, the bushes would burst into flame. So Moses would have looked and seen it and thought, oh yeah, that's, that's quite normal. But what drew his attention was that something really unusual was happening. That the bush continued to burn. It didn't flare up, burn and die. It continued to burn, but it wasn't consumed. Just as an aside, that's how we are called to be. Filled with the fire of God, which burns within us, but does not consume us. It's a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit working in in our lives. We need to be using our spiritual eyes to look and see, because God works in the natural, in the ordinary, in the everyday, to do something supernatural and to speak to us powerfully. 
In verses 4 to 6, we see Moses having probably the first real encounter of his life with God. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. I don't know what your response would be if you heard a voice speaking to you from within a burning bush. I'm not sure whether I'd have been saying, here I am, or running in the opposite direction. But Moses' heart responds, here I am. He doesn't even really know who he's talking to, but he recognizes that something significant is happening here. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is the first place in scripture where the word holy is used. This is something significant. And then God introduces himself to Moses, this man who has been an outcast, a murderer, who's who's failed, who feels like his life is over. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He recognized that God was so powerful, so mighty, so absolutely other that he didn't look at him. And then God says, I have heard the cry of my people and I am responding. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to rescue them and I'm going to bring them to the land that I've promised them and you are the one who's going to do it. Remember, Moses is 80. He's already lived, in effect, two lifetimes One being brought up in Egypt and one being a shepherd out in the desert. And God is suddenly saying to him, I've got a whole new plan for your life, Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. You know, when God speaks and gives us something to do, it's usually far outside anything that we believe we can do ourselves. He's speaking to this man and he's saying, I'm sending you back to the land that you, you are wanted for murder. I'm sending you back to the land you fleed from. I'm sending you back to your people that you don't even really feel that you belong to but I have a plan and a purpose for you. And as many of us do when God calls us and challenges us, Moses begins to argue with God. I can't do it. Why would I go? Why would they listen to me? Who am I? We've all had, I'm sure, those same arguments with God when he asks us to do something. Can you go and talk to your neighbor? 
invite them along to that thing that's happening at church? Lord, why, why would you ask me to do that? Surely there must be somebody else who could go, someone better equipped. God is challenging Moses to step out of his comfort zone and trust in him. And so Moses in verse 13, like suppose I go and and they say, and I say the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You almost see Moses saying, this is ridiculous, God. Why, Why would you send me? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What a strange name. What a strange thing to say. But you see, the truth is, God knows his identity. He knows his identity, and it doesn't have to relate to anything else. He is complete in himself. I am who I am. And God is speaking to a man who at 80 still does not know who he is, still does not know his identity still does not know what he is here for. But he's talking to a God who does. Up to this point, God has been given many names by people. Hagar called him the God who sees me. Abraham called him the Lord will provide. All names related to us and what God has done for the individual concerned. Hagar, God sees me. So that's what I'm going to call you. How do we see God? What names do we have for God? How do we relate to him? How do we think of him? Because the relationship that we have with God, the names we use for him, denotes our relationship with him. And that will reveal to those around us what we truly believe God is like. Do we call him father? Do we call him friend? Do we call him saviour? Do we call him Lord? The Egyptian gods and the gods of all the nations around were all related to their world. Rocks, stones, trees, mountains, sun, moon, water, the animals, if you think 
of the gods of Egypt. We, th we think of cats being sacred and they have snakes. Those were their gods. They created their gods out of the things that they see and they could relate to. But here, God is revealing himself to be totally other, totally outside of Moses' world, of his environment, of anything that he could possibly understand. He is so much more, so much bigger, so much more holy than Moses can even begin to comprehend. He is self-existent. He is timeless. He's absolutely incredible. He's beyond our imagination. I am. Without beginning, without end. I always was, I always am, and I always will be. Totally secure in his identity. He is holy. He is awesome. He is mighty. Our words fail because we make God in the image that we want him to be. Rather than recognizing God for who he is, saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Help me see you as you truly are. God lays out his plan for Moses. But Moses is still unwilling. He's had this encounter with this amazing almighty, beyond his understanding God, and yet he's still arguing with him. So God continues to work on Moses. And in chapter 4, Moses answered God, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. You see, God will always use the things that we are familiar with. He wouldn't suddenly say to you, I'm asking you to do something and you need to go and, I don't know, go on the high trapeze in order to achieve that. Now. He would only say that if you trained, if he prepared you. God takes us from where we are and he uses that which is familiar to achieve his purposes in us. The staff was a stick, it was a branch, it was one that Moses had probably cut from a tree or found out in the desert. And he would have used it to guide the sheep, to protect them, to fight off the wolves. It would have been worn smooth with years and years of use. 
It would have fitted him perfectly. God will use what fits you perfectly to achieve his plans and purposes for you. And so as he throws this staff, the thing that's familiar, on the floor, it turns into a snake. And Moses is afraid and runs from it. This is the thing that he's had in his hand probably every day for the last 30 or 40 years. And yet he runs from it. God is calling us to step into the things he's asking us to do, not run away from them. The remarkable thing is, God says to Moses, pick it up. And Moses picks it up by the tail. Who knows that if you're going to pick up a snake, the tail is the last place that you want to pick it up because then it can turn around and bite you. If you see, if you watch any of the wildlife programs, what do they do? They get the head. Because then it it can't do anything to harm you. But Moses, for some reason, bends down and picks it up by the tail. I just love that. Like, he's so afraid he runs, and then he picks it up by the tail. That's right. I just love just the pictures this paints for us. And God then gives Moses some other signs that he's going to use. And then in verse 14, after after Moses said again in verse 13, but Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Is this sounding familiar to any of you? Lord, please send somebody else. Please don't send me. There was a song a few years ago, years and years ago, when God first asked us to go to Africa. (laughs) Please don't send me to Africa. I really don't have what it takes. And that was what I was thinking. Lord, why would you send me? Why would you send me to Africa? Why would you do that? There must be somebody else who is much better. But God says, no, I'm sending you. Not only that, Aaron, who he's probably not seen for 40 years, is coming to meet you. God has already spoken to Aaron and is bringing Aaron along to help him. There's just so much in this story. And I'm just going to try and summarize just the the last few bits in chapter five. Often things get worse when God begins to move. Anyone notice that? God says, I'm calling you. We're going on an adventure and everything starts to go wrong. It can distract us from all that the Lord is doing. For the Israelites, they still had to make the bricks, but without the straw. 
They were busier, they were more hard-pressed. Has anyone found that when you decide you're going to take time to pray or to read your two chapters a day? You're going to set time aside and suddenly it's like all hell breaks loose. Phone calls, illness, family dramas, it all happens. You know, trouble, difficulty and persecution can be the catalyst that catapults us into our destiny. When we are comfortable, we don't want to move. God often has to make us uncomfortable so that we'll be prepared to do something different, to get into the place and the position and the calling that God has for us. And it's interesting that at this point in the story, in chapter 6, that there's another one of those weird genealogies. We've got all this story, and then there's a genealogy. And it's almost as though God is saying to Moses, This is your true identity. This is where I've positioned you. This is your family line. This is the people that you belong to. Moses is thinking, I am the last person that you could possibly use to do what you want to. And yet, when we look at Moses' story from the beginning up to this point, we see that out of every person on the planet, Moses is the only possible person who could do what God is calling him to do. God has trained him and prepared him for exactly this role at this time in the history of his people. No one else is more qualified for this role. And yet probably no one else feels less qualified for what God is calling him to do. God will always prepare us in advance for those things that he's calling us to do. Moses, finally, as he goes to do the thing that God has called him to do, he finally begins to understand his identity, who he is, but more importantly, who God is. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Locking Castle Church, please visit our website at lockingcastlechurch.org.